And as, as Tim said, my name is uh, John Reddy. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. And perhaps as you were participating in that responsive reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe your mind drifted to a wedding that you've attended where significant portions of that scripture were read. And it's understandable, the author... Paul writes in a very poetic fashion about a topic that's really relevant for two people that are getting ready to covenant with each other for the rest of their lives. But I, I do have a concern. I suspect that for many of us, the use and the application of this scripture at weddings can sometimes skew or shift our understanding about what Paul is really trying to impress upon the Corinthian believers here. And so by extension, I'm a little concerned that maybe we even gathered don't quite follow. And so I think it might be helpful for us to do a little bit of a recap. Um, starting in chapter 8, if we go back many weeks ago when in our journey in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he confronted what he saw as a growing faction of what I'll call elitists, Christian elitists, ones who claim to have superior knowledge and superior spiritual practice, especially back then when it came to food that was sacrificed to idols. And, and Paul helped us to see that love outshines knowledge because pride, Paul argued, elevates oneself, whereas love, he said, lifts up others. In chapter 9, Paul taught us that love, rightly displayed by a follower of Christ, often causes that follower of Christ to limit their personal freedom for the sake of another, perhaps, weaker individual. Chapter 10, it went on to make clear that whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. And then Paul shifted his attention to those principles and, and how they look when Christians begin to come together for corporate worship and spending time together, very much like we are this morning. In chapter 11, Paul addressed that through issues like head coverings and how do we think about the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, like we heard last week, he talked about the proper use of spiritual gifts or grace gifts. And he reminded us in verse 7 that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and he tells us why. It's for the common good. And then even today, as we look forward to next Sunday, he'll continue that theme that he began in chapter 12 about the grace gifts and their proper use when we get to chapter 14. But here today, in chapter 13, Paul stops and he lays a really crucial building block that we need to understand for corporate life as a church. In fact, many scholars will argue that this passage is the climax to Paul's discussion throughout 1 Corinthians about what it's like to live in community. What's it like to exist as a church gathered followers of Jesus you see, grace gifts in all the aspects of living in community for the follower of Jesus, they only make sense when they're squarely placed in the context 
where people see themselves as marked out by the Lord by love, what Paul refers to here as agape. You see, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul actually goes back and he echoes what he started teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. And what he declared there in chapter 8, for us to understand, it's so often violated that he returns to it again right in the middle of a large section of teaching about church life. And even in the chapter 13 that we just read, he repeats himself multiple times and he uses lots of images in multiple ways. Love is mentioned specifically 10 times at least. It's implied in almost every single sentence you just read. It's as though the Apostle Paul really wanted the Corinthian church and by extension he wants us to get this. It's so crucial. In his words, Paul is not only theological, but he's actually emotional. Why? Why so much attention? Right in the middle of a whole string of arguments he's making. Why does he get so emotional about this? I suspect that the misguided practices and the wrong attitudes of what I called the elitists in the church in Corinth had started to infiltrate the church and maybe even started to dominate that church's culture. It was a real threat then, as Paul lets us know, but I think it's a real threat today in American Christianity. You see, the reason I say it is because we currently live in a culture where the autonomy and the rights of an individual has so totally dominated our consciousness that sometimes I and you aren't even sure about how we are to live in community, whether that's in our families or in our neighborhoods or in our workplaces and even in our churches. And so if I was a smarter pastor, I would have started our scripture reading off one verse earlier. At the tail end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I am showing you a still more excellent way. In other words, as he's arguing with them a way life ought to be within the Corinthian church, he says, I'm going to show you something better. And so I invite you to just sort of bow your heads for a moment. And would you just repeat after me as I pray? Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. Amen. Right at the beginning of chapter 13, right from the get-go in verses 1 through 3, Paul uses a number of word pictures and some themes that kind of helps to really illustrate uh, my first encouragement of the morning. And that's this, simply this. Gospel love in community is the highest priority of growing spiritual maturity. And if that's true, then let's desire it more. Beginning in verse 1, Paul personalizes it when he writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
Simply put, even if believers speak in the most exalted languages imaginable, if they do not have love, they are like instruments that make annoying noises, irritating sounds. For me, I don't know for you, for me that would be like fingernails on a chalkboard. Anyone there with that one? Like that just, or the eh, huh, bike horn that just for some reason grates me the wrong way. And I wonder if in this teaching, Paul lists tongues as the first thing he talks about because the Corinthians, as we know, had been using and emphasizing it to such an extent, but it was being done without love, and so it caused a grievous spirit in Paul. And in fact, it's been suggested that this reference to the tongues of angels indicates that at least some of the Corinthians believed that they actually occupied sort of an exalted spiritual place because of its manifestation. And it appears that some of the Corinthians, not all, they had forgotten one important truth that we need to embrace, that spiritual gifts were given by God to build the church up, not to divide it. Those gifts were to communicate God's power and his presence amongst his people. And then in case the reader doesn't quite get it, Paul keeps on teaching by writing with some extreme language. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am... I hear it. I am nothing. That's right. Prophetic powers, even if, think of this, even if I can hear God's voice and I can serve as his mouthpiece through the word or through some sort of spontaneous revelation in the moment, if it's apart from love, I'm nothing. If I can understand all the mysteries, all the knowledge, maybe apply aspects of his plan of salvation to the local church, but I do that without love, Paul says I'm nothing if I have all faith the type of faith that can wipe out a mountain. But I don't have love. Paul says, I am nothing. Jesus spoke of faith moving mountains when we look back to Matthew and Mark's Gospels. But there, it seems like that was different what he was talking about. He was talking about mountain-moving faith with just a small amount of faith that's accessible to all believers. It's like the faith of a mustard seed. Paul here is describing a, a, a supernatural gift of faith that's so extraordinary, it does things that can blow our minds. But none of these powerful and miraculous acts actually demonstrate that I'm operating with the point center of God's call in my life. If I do these things, but I'm not motivated by and operating under love, then I am nothing, is what Paul says. And if there's any doubt, Paul's repetition, his what we call hyperbole and exaggeration, all, 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 
should be like a hammer drilling it into our spirits. Well, you may ask, what if, Pastor John, what if I act really, really sacrificial? Like I just, I just, look at verse 3. Paul almost seems to anticipate that that's what we would ask. He escalates our images, and he asks us to consider two really specific acts that, quite honestly, on the surface, they seem like they would be the ultimate acts of love. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. It appears that Paul's answer would be, um, nope. Without being motivated by and without demonstrating through love, even those extreme acts that look sacrificial add up to nothing. It makes me remember that in Matthew 6, Jesus gave a warning that, that there will be people who give, but they give to secure a good reputation before other people instead of for God's sake or out of their love for others. And I don't know about you, I can't think of a more extreme form of sacrifice than surrendering your physical body, your life, to the horrors of being burned alive. That image might bring some of us to remember the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, where they took a stand of faith and they yielded their bodies to the flames rather than recount their faith in God. For others, your mind might go to Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the Faith Hall of Fame, where it's acknowledged by the writer of Hebrews that some had quenched the power of fire while others, listen, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. And yet, even those examples, Paul can imagine situations where in the face of such remarkable self-sacrifice, ones that you and I probably struggle to even imagine, he can see times when those acts are not loving. It's not loving if one actually does it so that they can boast about their own sacrifice. You see, the Bible makes it plain that, that love can't be sort of measured by just actions alone, there needs to be an underlying motivation that flows out of the person of Christ. And the way that we're to love, I would suggest to you, is the way that Jesus loved. In John 13, he said this. This is familiar to many of us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to also love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples. You see, Paul wants us to see that a person is not measured by his or her gifts, or anything else for that matter, but by love. For without love, a person is nothing. And therefore, because that's true, it should become a priority for each one of us. My prayer this morning is that each one of us experiences a hunger to make the love of the Father demonstrated by the example of Jesus Christ and empowered by His Spirit 
the central thing that we do as we live and move and have our being in the life of the church. Now, a good question would be, okay, I see that as a priority, Pastor John, but, but what does love look like? And that seems to be a fair question. The Corinthians seem to have had it because, um, and you may be sitting there asking yourself that very question. You see, in our culture, we today have a common phrase. It's love is love. And although I understand what someone is trying to say when they use that phrase, it's really not that useful, or maybe it's really not that instructional if you're trying to define love, right? And so, according to the renowned philosopher Tina Turner, <laughs> what's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Donna Summer feels love while others sing that love is like oxygen. McCartney wants to fill the world with silly love songs. Benatar insists that love is a battlefield. The Bee Gees wanted to know how deep is your love. Beyonce is crazy in love. Your love keeps lifting Jackie Wilson higher and higher. Foreigner wanted to know what love is, and Adele's going to make you feel her love. And according to country and western star Kelsey Bellarini, I guess love is a cowboy. I don't know. <laughs> and we laugh, but our culture's obsessed, and it sings about love all the time. And yet my observation is that we're so confused about what love really is. For most in our culture, and I would say for many in our churches, I'm afraid, love is either about S-E-X or it's about sentimentality. In chapter 13, what we're reading here today, the Apostle Paul offers a truer picture of love, especially love that's witnessed in community, one that accounts for steadfastness, and one that accounts for sacrifice, hand in hand. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In this list of 15 different qualities of love, Paul helps readers to discern the true nature of genuine love. And certainly this list, it's, it's not an exhaustive list, but I think it is one that is representative of some key principles that we need to grasp and lay hold on if we're going to have a thriving communal life. Not surprisingly, Paul, because he's just such a phenomenal writer, he attacks this list like a poet would attack it, and he tells us what love is, and then he tells us what love isn't, and then he tells us what love is once again. According to Paul, love lived in community is patient. It is kind. It points to what he wrote to the Galatians when he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against those things, there's no law. 
So if and when we claim to have some sort of spiritual one-upsmanship, one hint at superiority over someone else because of some kind of giftedness or other aspect of our life, it would be wise for us to check ourselves according to the Spirit's final checklist. Character trumps results every time. In verse 7, Paul, he, he links love with the terms believing all things and hoping all things, and he sandwiches them between bearing all things and enduring all things, and it's like this love sandwich is what I call it. It refers to like a faith and a hope in God that he is working in the lives, listen, of other people over time. And therefore, we are free to trust in him to complete the work that he has begun and will be faithful to complete in their lives. Love believes the best of others within our church community and it also hopes the best for them as well. And so while we're coming together as the group of followers of Christ known as Redemption Hill Church, we always want to ask, Lord, how can we participate in the great things that you're doing in the life of someone else? But while we ask that question, we have the freedom to surrender the final responsibility of God's transformative work in their life to the person that it actually belongs to. Namely, the work of the Holy Spirit released into that person's life in the name of Jesus the Son to the glory of God the Father. In other words, each one of us are not in charge of what God is doing in their lives. We get the invitation to participate in what God is accomplishing. And so I just, if I can just be bold and suggest that whenever I think of or you think of another brother or sister in Christ, especially one that's getting under your skin, that's annoying you, that said something that mm, may have made you uncomfortable, I'm going to invite you to pray for them. But I'm going to ask you to pray for them by starting by asking God to give you a greater measure of the seven qualities that Paul teaches is fundamental to living in community. And then after you ask him for patience and kindness and bearing, ask God to help you express that kind of love, ever patient, ever kind, ever hopeful to the very person that you're praying for. Can you imagine the impact if that's the kind of life that we live together with each other? Oh my goodness, the power, the power. For the church, Paul goes on to give eight other characteristics of what love is not. Love doesn't envy or have, a, have an overwhelming zeal for somebody else's status. It doesn't boast for the sake of public declaration. It's not arrogant. Why, why would love be arrogant? There's no basis. Gifts displayed in the church are gifts that have been given and received. 
It's not rude. It's not unseemly. It's not exclusive in the way that we treat each other. It doesn't insist on its own way. In fact, we've heard this chapter after chapter after chapter in 1 Corinthians. Love gives up rights and it seeks the benefit of others first. It's not irritable. Oh, Lord, help me. It's not resentful. Listen, it doesn't seek a posture of waiting to be hurt. Have you ever found yourself in that place? It's not easily provoked. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. That phrase captures, if you could look at the Greek, it's kind of a mathematical accounting term. And so some translations say, keeps no record of wrongs. Forgiveness is not granted if an accounting record of offenses is maintained. And so as a practical matter, could I suggest that in the life of our church, if any auditing of accounts, if if there's to be any record keeping that's maintained within our relationships, maybe the practice of conducting a self-audit is a more godly way of keeping track. In other words, it might be helpful for me to use Paul's list as a checklist before the Lord for me as I pray for greater maturity living in the context of Redemption Hill Church. You see, my second encouragement for us this morning is that gospel love and community is really the proof of growing spiritual maturity. And if that's true, let's demonstrate that more. See, when you look at Paul's words, we have to keep in mind that the beautiful words that he used here, often applied in weddings, was primarily designed to help churches use spiritual gifts and live together in community peaceably. And so to summarize the list, it can be hard, but here's what I can tell you. Love ultimately is not self-absorbed. It always seeks the good of others. It cherishes the truth. It's optimistic, but never naive. Love is just not something you feel. Love is something that you do. You don't feel patient. You wait in hope. You don't feel kind. You act with compassion. You want to be in a community where there's no record keeping? You tear up your list. Why does Paul spend so much time, an entire chapter on this subject? I think it's actually kind of easy. It's kind of hard to do. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, uh, love was corrupted. We know that, and it's, it's no longer natural to us. Our definitions, I would tell you, are deficient. A lot of the examples that we look to outside the Scriptures are wrong. Even some of the Scriptural commands feel counterintuitive to us. Many of our big influences in our culture teach myths about the true nature of love. And listen carefully, in the brokenness of this world, many of us have had our capacity to truly love 
impaired. Not only by sin, not only by corruption, but also through trauma and woundedness, discouragement and disappointment at the hands of others. And then if that doesn't make it hard enough, it's even more complicated. For when we experience the saving power of Christ at the cross, we still have a lifetime of work being transformed by his spirit into his image. And so we bring the effects of some of those hurtful and selfish events. We actually bring them into the life of the church. Many of us have never been taught or even talked about healthy conflict resolution. And many of us aren't really that good at it, myself included. We think it's almost like a healthy congregational life will just sort of happen if we come together. I think Paul is saying here, nope, that's not how it works. We got to see it. We got to want it. We got we to gotta pursue it. Can I suggest we, we have to build it even as the Spirit empowers us. And so my prayer for us this morning is that as we hear the truth of God's Word about what life as the body of Christ should be like, that we'll see how Paul's list has been shaped by none other than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and as his followers, that we'll commit to living as he lived and treating each other as he wanted us to treat each other. And as we do that, here's, here's what's really powerful. You ready for this? As we do that, it will echo beyond our gatherings. It'll go into the classrooms and the conference rooms and the living rooms of Medford and beyond. It's not just for us. It's for those that are outside of us too. And so as we lean into loving more, regardless of the nature or the number or the quality of our gifts, let's just lay hold of my final encouragement for us this morning. Gospel love, in its essence, is the eternal reflection of God's character. And if that's true, let's trust Him more. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul says love is everlasting. It's eternal. It doesn't end. It never goes out of style. It's not just a fad. Prophecy, knowledge... They're restricted to this age. Why? Why are they restricted? Because both of them are partial. The miraculous like that is incomplete. It's not that they're mixed with error. It's just that they're not exhaustive. They don't tell the whole story. Some scholars will look at this and, and postulate that prophecy and healing and miracles were given to authenticate the apostles in their writings during the early years of the church, but then those gifts ceased once the New Testament was written and pulled together and the apostles died somewhere around A.D. 100. 
I don't hold that. Um, I don't see that. Because even though Paul knew his words and his writings were authoritative, I just don't think Paul had any conception of how they would be collected and how they would be included in the New Testament for hundreds and thousands of years for us to be able to, to read and benefit from. Rather, I hold, and I think this scripture here uh, illustrates, that Paul expected these gifts to continue until Christ returned. The time when all of God's purposes for human beings will be realized and fulfilled. And so as wonderful as grace gifts are, it's wise for us to recognize they're provisional, they're partial. When perfection arrives, they're going to be left behind. Paul goes on to write, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Apostle Paul uses this illustration where he sort of contrasts his childhood with his own adulthood. And the verb here, gave up, it's the same one that he uses in verse 8, to cease. It appears about it that it's more than just his life ceasing. It seems like he's pointing to the coming of the end of the age. He's saying that this period of childhood should be compared to this present age when spiritual gifts like prophecy and tongues and knowledge are needed. Why are they needed? Because we're still in our infancy. And in case we don't see that point, he then uses this metaphor of a mirror. Now, ancient mirrors aren't like mirrors that we use today. Uh, most of them were polished metal. And so if you were going to see your reflection, it would probably be dim or dark, maybe indirect. And with the aid of spiritual gifts, believers really do have times to truly see. But even there, the fullness of who God is remains incomplete and partial. And so, rather than seeing dimly or incompletely or partially through spiritual gifts, Paul says that there's a day when we will see clearly and completely and fully. It is the day when we see what he says here, face to face. There's an age to come. It's better than this present age. The perfect of verse 10 will we see Jesus face to face at his future coming. The apostle John knew this. He said to other Christians in one of his letters, Beloved, we are God's children now, just like we are gathered here. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. That sounds like maturity to me. That seems like Christ-likeness to me. For the follower of Jesus Christ, that seems like adulthood to me. Can you imagine what seeing him face to face will be like? When I hear that phrase, face to face, my mind goes back to God encounters in the Bible. Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. Gideon's encounter with the angel of the Lord in Judges 6. Moses knowing the Lord 
face-to-face in Deuteronomy 34. And one day, John Reddy, in some future time. I've already told the elders that when the day comes that they preside over my funeral, I want an old-timey Promise Keepers men's anthem song either sung or played at my service. It's called In That Day. My heart's burning for that day when I'll see you face to face. I'll keep watching and waiting, staying focused on your word. I will see you. I will touch you. You will hold me in that day. You see, in that day, the spiritual gifts that God has deposited in me and in you will no longer be needed. The gifts will become useless because, not because there's anything wrong with them or they're inherently bad, but because they're partial, they're incomplete. Paul says a greater reality is coming and the gifts will be forgotten as the glory which the gifts point to arrives. Spiritual gifts will be like stars fading into the background in the light of a rising sun. One named Jesus. And so just as God knows me fully now, I and you will fully comprehend and understand in the future. It doesn't mean that we'll enjoy infinite knowledge or we'll be omniscient like God is omniscient. But I think the illustration of childhood and adulthood helps me here. I'll come to maturity. You'll come to maturity if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. And you know what remains in that day? The love of God. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. Life in the coming age is going to continue to be marked by trust in God and hope in God and believers. We'll still need to continue to rely upon him and look forward to a future with anticipation. But love's going to be the greatest because it's the purpose and the goal of faith and hope. Faith rests in and relies upon God who in his great love sent his son for the forgiveness of sin. Hope looks forward to enjoying with God a relationship in Christ through the Spirit for all eternity and love revels in the beloved. Repeatedly, the psalmist declared, his steadfast love endures forever. Lord, my prayer for us this morning is that you would make us mature in our love for you as well as in our love for one another. I appreciate an observation that uh, Pastor James Emery White uh, wrote about this topic. He said, and I think it's timely given our season, we live in a day of deeply contentious disagreement with any number of things, 
but most of it is political in nature and over things that, while not overtly political, have been politicized. When we disagree with each other, we have two choices. We can maintain the ultimate mark of the Christian, love, or we can abandon and betray it. Ouch. Tough words when I read that. I've got two choices. So let me ask you, I know how I'm doing. How are you doing? Is love the mark of your life in community? Or are you tempted to abandon or maybe even betray it? As a follower of Christ, one who's been adopted by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit upon the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, one who now lives in new community known here as Redemption Hill Church, is it love that marks your life in this new community? In his last extensive time of teaching, with his disciples, before he had to face the cruelty of crucifixion, Jesus went before the Father and prayed in the presence of his disciples on their behalf. Apostle John tells us that this is what our Lord prayed. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, by the way that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? Did you catch that the hope of the world, the possibility that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the potential for right relationship with God the Father, would be authenticated according to Jesus by this one thing? That this one thing would confirm the truth of the gospel before a world that is watching. And that thing is the loving unity that a confessing body of believers displays. You know, history tells us that the rapid and the massive sort of expansion of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire was largely fueled by the culture-busting lifestyle of the love that Christians had for one another. The very fulfillment of the words that Jesus prayed in the presence of his disciples. And this loving unity, it doesn't mean that every point of Christian loving, uh, living is in total agreement. It doesn't mean that conflict never arises it's not just an acknowledgement in our heads that love is important. It's not just a feeling in our hearts that helps us to experience fondness for each other. It's that the, the head and the heart come together and it compels us to action. Love demonstrates love. And in that demonstration, we are mutually blessed and more importantly, others far from God, see him and how much we really do know him. And so this morning, I think what Paul's trying to tell us as I wrap up is that reflecting God's nature 
gospel love should be the priority and it should serve as the proof of our growing spiritual maturity within our gospel community and that's permanently. It never goes away. Last year, the elders decided it'd be helpful to articulate some of the traits that a growing follower of Jesus would want to cultivate as they move towards greater maturity and greater Christ-likeness. And one of the things that we landed on is intentionality in our efforts to build those loving and caring relationships, even amongst ourselves. And so it's one of the reasons why you so often hear us challenge you and ourselves, come on Sundays and worship God together regularly. Connect with a group where you can know others and you can be known. Join a team so you can use your unique giftedness in community with others. Give generously so all of us can have our needs met and fund our mutual mission. It may seem obvious, but I'm going to say it. If we've heard from the scriptures this morning that we are a new community and Jesus prayed that we demonstrate loving unity one to another so that the world can see the truth of his love for us and by extension for themselves, then how can we fulfill that if we're never with each other? At least some of the time. The Corinthian church knew Jesus, but they were struggling to live out the purity and the unity of Jesus with the Father's love as their foundation. Do you ever feel that way? Let's advance love. Let's embrace it. Let's make that the mark of our church. Love for God, love for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we head into the celebration of the Lord's Supper, would you help us to listen to the words of Jesus, to his followers, and to prioritize love? Lord, would you help us to yield to those promptings that the Holy Spirit gives to us when it's time to do love even when it's hard? Would you help us, Father, to honor you, our dad, every time we treat another brother or sister with not our kind of love, with your kind of love? We humbly ask this in the precious name of Jesus the one who we know laid down his life for others. Amen and amen. Thank, thank you, Pastor.